From the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part one of our interview with pastor and author Lillian Daniel. We discuss her recent book, When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin reviews A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, the new book by S. Brent Plate. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Lillian Daniel. Lillian Daniel is the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. She's a pastor here in Glen Ellen, Illinois. We're speaking in the context of a conference at Wheaton that is co-sponsored with the American Bible Society on the Bible and democracy in America. Reverend Lillian Daniel, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. In terms of the context of this of this conference, Part of what we've been focusing on is is the way that uh, the Bible is brought into the public square. In your experience as a pastor, how have you observed that interface between the Bible or or the lessons that we get from the Bible and the application to public life? So in the old congregational tradition, you know, if you picture the meeting house on the green in New England and it's a white clabbered church and it's been there hundreds of years, they believed that the windows always had to be clear. Now, part of that was that they were resisting the stained glass windows because they were on the run from the Anglicans, and, you know, they didn't want to do anything the Anglicans did. But but they also had a theology behind the clear windows, and it was that the, the concerns of the world and the pain of the world would always be visible from inside the church, and that the gospel light would then shine out through the clear glass onto the pains and the struggles of the world. And so when we talk about this metaphor of the window and the clear window— um, the notion that somehow we aren't blocking out the the ills of the world, the evils of the world, and we're, we're looking at the pain of the world, and then we're bringing to the pain of the world this notion of the gospel light. Uh, if we look across the history of, of Christianity in America, we see a, a great deal of of different ideas about what that gospel light is and what that gospel message is. And so when we take this congregational model of shining the light through the window, what part of the spectrum are we looking at? What what is the what is the light that is shining from your congregation mm-hmm. to the to the world and to the pain of the world? Well, so one theory and a lot of historians have advanced it around American history is that we might not have democracy as it looks like in the United States were it not for these early congregational churches. They brought with them this idea that the church was the meeting house, and that was also the seat of democracy. And so people would have the the meeting house would be sort of your town meeting house as well as your town church. Now, the irony is that with that sort of small-D democracy and that populist impulse, they soon set up a state church where only white males who owned land and were members of the church could vote. So there's a certain irony about how they they strayed from that. But um, that early understanding of the meeting house and the church meant that um, there was a porous boundary, 
and that it wasn't like there was the things of this world and the things of God. They, God was in the midst of all of it. Now, some churches have what we, we could call an Episcopal model, model of governance, where you have a sort of top-down authority structure where the, uh, the religious authorities like bishops sort of tell the lay people sort of what the decisions are. Is that the congregational model, or is there a different model for decision-making? We would be the absolute opposite of that. And that was part of, you know, what they were on the run from uh, with the Anglicans and coming over here to start different model church. So we believe that the authority of the church lies in the congregation. Jesus is the head of the church, but um, after that, it's the congregation are the ministers. They choose their own ministers. It's kind of a free market entrepreneurial system. We tend to um, connect with other churches when we feel like it. But uh, when the denomination speaks, it does never speaks for the churches. It's only allowed to speak to the churches. And so when you talk about the congregational model being in some ways a model for democracy itself, this is really what you mean, the idea that, that, that people themselves are invested somehow with the uh, capacity for self-governance. Absolutely. In our churches, um, when you get a new minister, there's a search committee that goes out and finds that minister. But then you're brought in as the candidate and you literally lead worship and preach and there's a congregational meeting afterwards where the members of the church vote yes or no as to whether they want you as their minister. Now I'm going to assume that theologically there's there's a, a role given to the Holy Spirit in this process. Yes, but also um, a sort of deep ecclesiology, a deep respect for the church as the... Um, as the body that interprets together, so that it's not me standing on a mountaintop saying, here's a word from the Lord, let me tell all of you what to do, that the congregation is also full of people who interpret the word, and that together as the body of Christ, we figure out what to do. So we're led in some way on a path, but as we're going on that path, the people walking that path have some capacity to interpret the the path that we're on and and kind of the the pace of walking. Absolutely, and it goes back to John Calvin and the reformed tradition where Calvin had this idea of the perspicuity of scripture which meant that, you know, anybody could approach scripture and glean some message through the Holy Spirit from it. You didn't need a priest or a minister to be the, the translator for you. Um, not only could you do that with scripture, you actually had a certain responsibility to do that with scripture. Now, if we then take this and extend it to the democratic process itself, we have, uh, we have within this congregational model a notion that people are endowed in some way with, with a rationality that will allow them to make decisions for themselves. And they're not necessarily having to turn to some authority to get that decision okayed. So we, we see in this uh, a model for something very similar to what we might call a representative form of democracy. So when we look at the history of America, is this really one of the, the models that was used by the, the founders for, for creating the kind of democratic structures that we have? Yes, I, I think it was. But then you throw into the mix with the churches this bizarre thing called the Holy Spirit that um, that that often defies rationality. So you have early in American history, Jonathan Edwards, you know, is preaching this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And when people read it in high school, they read it next to Ben Franklin, and so it just seems like the most boring, awful thing in the world. But it's this revolutionary moment where he's preaching this sermon, and people fall out in the pews, and they're they're visited by the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just the minister who gets to speak the word of God, but it's women and slaves and lay people. And that's the great awakening. And it's this spirit-filled movement that sweeps across 
you know, the colonies and, and uh, changes the course of American history. It's highly democratizing. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Uh, today we're speaking with Reverend Lillian Daniel. Reverend Daniel is the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. We're speaking in the context of the Wheaton Conference on the Bible and Democracy in America, co-sponsored with the American Bible Society. Now, can you can you trace for us just briefly the, the path from this public sermon, Sinners in the mm-hmm. Hands of an Angry God, to this outpouring that you just said of women and slaves and others? What, what was the time frame for that? Did it happen immediately? Was it a gradual progression? Well, so, you know, when you look back at the history, it's so interesting. They had their own little problems in the town, one of which was bundling, which was that um, teenagers of opposite sex were snuggling up together, and there was controversy of whether you should allow this or not. And, you know, they're dealing with all the kind of same issues we deal with today. And he preaches this sermon about, uh, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And people literally in that service start being visited by the Holy Spirit. And then he writes about it. And he writes about how over the course of weeks and months after that, people's lives start changing in these deep ways. And and, And they testify to this moment and this power of God at work. And when he writes about it, other people get word of it, and they get excited about it, and then there are other examples of it happening, and soon you have this split in these American churches between what are called the old lights and the new lights. And the new lights believe, um, as the pastor John Robinson did when he gave a speech to the folks on the Mayflower, there is yet more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word. So was this Edwards' intention? Did he go into this sermon thinking, okay, I'm going to I'm going to roll them in the pews today. and I'm Absolutely not. I mean, he did not have an easy ministry. And so he is shocked by, by, this, um, by these emotions that come out and all this other stuff that happens. But he records it and he writes about it. Um, and, and the word spreads. And then it's happening with other ministers. And then you have figures like George Whitfield, you know, who come in as evangelists. And they say that George Whitfield used his emotions in his preaching, which Edwards never would have done, and that he would preach out in a field and 20,000 people could hear him. And he was trained as an actor, by the way. So Edwards was... Edward. Let me make sure that I'm clear here. So Edwards gave this sermon, and there was this impassioned emotional response in the pews, but Edwards himself was not an emotional preacher? He wasn't, though he wrote about uh, feelings and emotions in ways that that were sort of innovative and influenced by folks who were writing in England at the time. But no, he would have preached in the traditional Puritan style, which would be a monotone, and to preach from directly from notes, you know, to read from a script, and to stare at the clock that was well above the heads of the parishioners at the back of the church. So it was like he was giving a lecture. A lecture in a monotone. Wow. And yet, somehow, the Spirit works through this, and in working through this, it creates this effect that has these ripples that go through society. Now, within the context of the conference, you spoke uh, about this this sermon as both a sort of a, an intellectual touchstone, but you also have some personal relationship to this sermon. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so when I was training for the ministry 20 years ago at Yale, um, they have in their Beinecke Library of Rare Books, they have the actual written text of this sermon that Jonathan Edwards would have preached. And I was studying American history and all of this, and so I went in there and I asked if I could actually see the sermon. And it comes out, it's on these tiny pieces of paper, and not only does he write 
on the front and back of the paper, but then he turns the paper over and writes in between the lines of what he wrote before. But it's written in such a shorthand because paper was so precious that I found that I couldn't even interpret or understand the abbreviations. And I'm sitting there with this amazing, rare piece of paper in front of me, and I can't understand any of it. And what was that experience like, to to know that this was such a groundbreaking piece of paper, and yet to have it be uh, not accessible to you in terms of understanding and interpretation? Well, I felt like a huge idiot, you know? And I felt like, oh my gosh, here I am with this paper, and I can't understand it. What's wrong with me? And then I'm looking around, these other people with rare books, and I'm thinking, they're here with the Gutenberg Bible, and I'm just sitting here with this piece of paper. I don't know what to do. So I kind of pretended to take notes and acted like I was getting something out of it for about an hour and handed it in. Later, I come to find out that they literally were calling the people who were transcribing these sermons today in the Jonathan Edwards collection, they called him translators because it was almost as if it were a different language that he wrote in. Now, what can we learn from that about our own current hermeneutical struggles? Well, in the Yale School of Theology, there's this idea that there's a grammar of the faith and that you can't sell somebody on the life of faith abstractly. It's like a family reunion. And you have to sort of say, look, I've got this family reunion. I'd love to tell you about it, but to be honest, you just have to be there and experience it to understand it. And in many ways, that's what church is. We have our own rules and language and grammar of the faith. And to try to explain that to somebody from the outside just doesn't work. You have to invite them in, and that's how they learn. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is the Reverend Lillian Daniel. Reverend Daniel is the author of When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough, and she's a pastor here in Glen Ellen, Illinois. We're having this conversation in the context of a wider conference at Wheaton College about the Bible and democracy in America that's co-sponsored by the American Bible Society. Well, in your own work as a pastor, you you yourself have dealt with uh, life in the congregation. You've mentioned that you've been a pastor for 20 years, and one of the fruits of this time is this book that uh, has a very peculiar title, When Spiritual But Not Religious Is Not Enough. So would you mind telling our listeners uh, briefly what was it that led you to write this book and, and what the purpose of the book is? Sure. So so today, the Congregational Church is a very open-minded church where um, we've come out early uh, on key social issues of the day. We were the first to ordain African-American, first to ordain as a minister a woman, first to ordain openly gay man. Um, We're known for having come out as the first Christian denomination to support gay marriage. So we're a very open-minded church. But one of the things that we're not great about is making a case for why church matters. Because we don't believe that you're going to burn in hell if you don't go to church, right? I'm not worried about my Jewish friends, you know, I'm not preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards was. And yet we believe that there's meaning and depth in the life of faith. So how do we make a case for why that matters? And in particular, how do we make that case to people who say, I am spiritual but not religious? And so when someone says that, and I I used to be a youth pastor, and so I I encountered this a little bit in my own experience of, of people who were disillusioned with the institutional church, but really liked the idea of having some sort of connection to a supernatural, invisible power that they thought was their pal. Am I sort of getting right the kind of characterization, or am I mischaracterizing kind of what the spiritual but not religious mindset is like? 
So for I would define it the same way, though, of course, people define these things in different ways. But for me, when I make the argument, I'm talking about spiritual but not religious as people who do not wish to or will not um, participate in a community of faith in any way, but want to do this in an individualized way. Often they're um, making claims like they find God in nature and they spend, they get more out of the New York Times at a coffee shop on Sunday than a sermon. Um, they often um, will dip into different traditions in terms of reading books and um but but they're they're not willing to sort of do that in community. That's the group I'm talking about, and it's an increasingly large group in American culture. No, why is it, in some way, a dangerous idea or or a, a non-productive idea? I don't want to characterize it as dangerous, but why is it not productive for mm-hmm. religious life to have this kind of individualism? I mean, aren't aren't Americans just a nation of individuals anyway? Isn't this just a progression of the good American ideal of my way or the highway? I think it is a progression. I think we are individualists. I think we're also a bunch of narcissists. And I'm not sure it's a great progression uh, down that road. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of times when people don't want to participate in religious community, there are a whole variety of reasons. And uh, one reason is, to be perfectly honest, they've been injured or hurt by a religious community somewhere along the way. And I, my heart breaks when I hear those stories. But what I want to push back is to say... Um, you know, that's one religious community, and there are so many options out there. And a lot of times people will characterize all of Christianity or all of religion in a stereotypical way based on one experience that they've had. And were they to do that with another group in society, we would be very quick to press back and say, hey, that's a stereotype. But there's a way, and particularly open-minded Christians, where they don't push back and they just go, yeah, I know, I'm really, really sorry. Like, wow, I hated the Crusades too. Yeah, sorry about the Inquisition. You know, and I want our people to push back and say, um, that's one branch of the church, and I'd love for you to acknowledge that the church is a very diverse place. So what is it particularly about Christianity? And maybe we can even say, what is it particularly about the Christian the varieties of Christianity in America that make it so ripe for that kind of stereotype? Oh, boy. Well, part of it is, you know, you've got a media situation where, and this is not just about religion, but everywhere, where they feel like if there's one extreme point of view, they have to put that up there and then put the other most extreme point of view, and that makes a great story. So, you know, the Westboro Baptist Church protesting at military funerals gets way too much attention. You know, the pistol-packing pastor who wants to burn the Koran, you know, gets way too much attention. And then uh, we who are sort of reasonable Christians and would disapprove of all of that try to speak up, but that's not an interesting story in the same way. So given that we can't control the media and we can't control all of that, I think it's even more important that reasonable, open-minded Christians um, get more comfortable talking to their neighbors about why their faith matters and why their lives have more depth and meaning because they participate in these communities. Now, would you characterize this as a sort of new flavor of evangelicalism? Is this trying to get the good news out there in a new way, or is this a new paradigm for talking about one's faith that isn't meant to proselytize but is instead simply meant to give a positive identification without the necessity of somebody joining? I think that we have been sort of stuck on the burn in hell argument for Christianity. And so intelligent people who don't accept it then think the alternative is, well, whatever floats your boat. I'm arguing for a space in the middle where we actually say, I believe my life is richer and better because I participate in this community. 
I actually think it's good for me to be shaped by a tradition larger than myself. I actually don't think that my unique thoughts in any given moment are are better ideas than anybody else has come up with in 2,000 or 10,000 years. You know, I think it's good for me to be shaped by community. Can we make that argument without sounding obnoxious, but also without sounding as though we're saying nothing, you know? And for a long time, the Mainline Evangelism Project, you know, has been, um, wow, we're doing nothing of particular importance, um, and we really hope you'll come. You're welcome here. Well, Lily and Daniel, it has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with Lily and Daniel. We'll have part two up soon as well at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following me at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin discusses S. Brent Plate's new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Among the many things it was protesting and reforming, the Protestant Reformation was, in many respects, a protest against sensual religion and a reform of the embodied messiness of faith toward a more rarefied, intellectual style of worship. While several centuries have passed to bring nuance to such a broad claim, it still remains that we in the West often think of the distinction between the mental and the bodily, the physical and the spiritual, to be quite a natural one. My friend and colleague S. Brent Plate disagrees, and has made a career looking into the mechanics of religious sensuality, both in his many conference presentations as well as in his role as the editor of the journal Material Religion. His new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses, seeks to tell the story of human religion through this sensuality, the taste, the touch, and the smell of religious practice. Katie Scroggin offers this review. Among others, feminist and post-colonial thinkers have remarked upon the fact that the practice of religion often seems to amount to nothing but an entirely head-based endeavor, a way of upholding intellectual doctrines and beliefs without those convictions being grounded in or even participating in any sort of lived sensual reality. Scholar of religion S. Brent Plate joins the conversation surrounding this development and seeks to correct our religious detachment from the world around us with his new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Plate says the half in the book's title represents humans' desire to achieve wholeness by connecting to people and things beyond ourselves. 
Central to that desire is a recognition that we as individuals are insufficiently equipped on our own to achieve or enjoy a fulfilling life in this world. The five full objects Plate discusses, stones, drums, incense, crosses, and bread, act as channels through which we have sought and continue to search for our spiritual halves, objects with which we act sensually, not merely intellectually, as we do with creeds or theoretical propositions. These objects, which have historically grounded the sense and practice of religion, are known features of our world that enable us, as Plate says, to understand what is unknown. Interaction with and manipulation of these features amount to a sort of technological practice that involves what the author calls a know-how in making connections between and among the material and spiritual. Hence, Plate declares that religious people are not believers so much as technologists. The author takes us on a tour of how various religions and cultures have made use of and continue to employ the five objects that are intimately connected to the natural world, reminding us, for example, that stones are rocks that have in some way been fashioned into a size able to be managed by humans, that drums grant their existence to the skins of animals, and that bread has its origins in the plant world. Through this tour, we are encouraged to see that we connect to the sacred through the ordinary, via the gift of our senses. And so we take rocks from the ground to build sacred temples and to assert something about permanence. We burn incense not only as a perfume, but also in order to signal the entrance into a holy space and as a reminder of the ephemeral nature of all life and things. The work in general is an engaging exploration of how a few objects have been used across cultures and all over the world for similar purposes, and Plate is careful, and thankfully so, to warn us that he's not alleging these objects in common mean we're all the same, or doing the same things in the end. But the book's content doesn't really fulfill the expectations the title has given us. This isn't a history of religion, but an examination of five objects via the lens of their employment in a variety of religious practices. Plate provides us with no larger context within which these objects carry out their particular functions, no real in-depth exploration of the traditions themselves, so that if readers aren't already familiar with the broader scope and general patterns and practices of these traditions, they probably won't finish the book having gained any comprehensive understanding of those featured belief systems. The second part of the title, though, is more aptly named. Plate's presentation does give an idea of the generically spiritual, as opposed to the particularly religious, weight that some objects have contained and continue to carry the world over whether used in institutionalized rituals or in impromptu, unofficial fashion, such as the rocks travelers mark up and leave behind at certain places in Detroit's airport. Plate wants us to get away from the assumption that religions or spiritual rituals were always as heavily skewed toward the doctrinal and creedal, the intellectual and rational, as he rightfully seems to believe. We should remember that religion is engaged with and responds to the natural world, and that we are an inseparable part of that world. Otherwise, religion would seem to be of little real use, other than as a means of escape, as the basis for rulemaking, or as a way of drawing thought-based boundaries between ourselves. There's a feeling here that Plate's work is attempting to combat just such uses of religion via a reconnection to lived-sensed reality. Interacting with the natural world may help us understand that religion does encourage us perhaps even demand, 
that we act in that world with respect and care. Part of this interaction, which Plate makes explicit from the start, involves a recognition that individuals can't survive in isolation, whether that means we need rocks or people or plants to accompany us on our journeys. It's an assertion we probably can't hear often enough, especially in the face of technologies that not only isolate us from the natural world, but under the guise of surface-level connectivity, from meaningful interaction with each other as well. But the author's valuation of the material world, and his encouragement to deepen our connection to it, sometimes turns into exaltation of children's interaction with objects as some sort of pure communion destroyed by the discipline and conventions that bring children into adulthood. Intellection is involved in even the youngest kid's wonder-filled exploration, but Plate's descriptions of children's approaches to objects around them sometimes feel like an assertion that we would all be better off if we just played with our food a little more and tried to pet snakes. They also bear the danger of devaluing reason and intellection within the realm of faith, something I'll wager Plate is most decidedly not trying to do. Perhaps the problem isn't so much with the author's mode of attempting to bring us to a renewed appreciation of the things found within our environments, but with the fact that we still haven't figured out how to strike a balance between the Enlightenment's sometime overemphasis on reasoning and Romanticism's reactionary glorification of nature and unfettered feeling. In spite of the tendency some might see in the book to fall slightly on the side of the latter, the work provides a nice attempt at trying to achieve that balance, while letting us learn a little more about each other's lives along the way. Katie Scroggin is an independent translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses, by S. Brent Plate. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC, and the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WETN on the campus of Wheaton College. WETN is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron was our editor. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you.